Well, good morning again, everyone. How are you today? If you would, take your Bibles and turn with me to Joshua chapter 9. Some unique things happening, or at least one unique thing happening today. There's going to be three Pastor Gants preaching in different locations all at the same time. Um, that's the first time in history that's happened, so I don't know. We'll see if the earth starts to shake or something. I don't know. But um, <clears throat> My father is uh, away again. Uh, Monday, he um, called me up and he said, uh, I've been, I was scheduled to preach at Agape, and um, you know, I've got a chance to preach elsewhere. He says, what do you think? Can we change the schedule? And I said, sure, absolutely. And... <clears throat> Next thing I knew, I ended up sick at home all week long. And uh, I shared with you last week how um, my message last week, I, I, you know, it was kind of last minute. I didn't know what to preach. I had a message, and, and I just didn't think it was the right time for it. And at the last minute, God said, okay, preach this. And literally yesterday, I, I hadn't been in the office at all. I didn't have, like, anything prepared and I was laying in bed, and I thought to myself, well, maybe if I post on Facebook, if somebody else hears from God as to what I'm supposed to preach tomorrow, maybe you can let me know. Um, <laughs> and so then God just said, kind of said, let's continue on with last week's message. And so, again, we're going to be starting in Joshua 9. Well, last week, uh, if you weren't here, uh, we were in Philippians 4.13. And we talked about how Paul says that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. And so again, we're going to continue along with that line of thinking, and it's not about how big your problems are. How many of you got big problems in life, or have had big problems in life, or think maybe at some point in time there might be a big problem in life? It's not about how big your problems are. It's not about how much you need to overcome. It's not about how... bad things have gotten. What it's all about is how big is your God? How big is your God? You see, often we see how big the giant is, how large the mountain looms, how imposing the kingdom of darkness seems, yet we do not see how big our God truly is. So again, we begin in Joshua chapter 9. I want to give you a little setup for this, this story The Israelites had been wandering in the promised land for over 40 years since God had brought them out of Egypt. They come to the banks of the Jordan River. Joshua, the successor of Moses, leads the Israelites in. Uh, They come and they get their first big victory at Jericho, a very famous story in the Bible. And then they come to a city named Ai. And Ai was small and weak compared to Jericho. It was really supposed to be just a pushover city. And so Joshua sends what he thinks was a sufficient force to conquer it. However, there was a man named Achan, an Israelite, who knowingly and willfully sinned against God by taking uh, money and items from Jericho that were forbidden for Israel to take by God. He had hid them in his tent. And because of the sin of this man, Achan, God judged Israel and the Israelites, and they were defeated at Ai. They have this spectacular uh, victory at this giant city with these big walls called Jericho, and then they come to this little place called Ai, and they're defeated. Achan and his family, 
Sin was revealed and they died over it. And then Israel goes on to be victorious over Ai. And then we come to Joshua chapter 9. If you would stand as we read there for a moment. Verse 1, as soon as all the kings who are beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the lowland all along the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites heard of this. They gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. If you would, you may be seated. Five kings, five kingdoms, these five cities. They hear of what God did at Jericho. They hear about Joshua and the Israelites and how mighty they are and how mighty their God is. And they say, let's band together. This is the only way we're going to win. We have to take them on together. But there was another tribe, a Canaanite tribe from a place called Gibeon that had another plan for survival. The five kings, they said, let's gang up. We're going to fight Israel. But there was another tribe called, uh, another place called Gideon, uh, Gibeon that came up with another plan. They dressed up as travelers. They disguised who they really are. And they begged Joshua to take them in and make a covenant with them. Listen as I continue on in Joshua chapter 9. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they on their part acted with cunning and went and made ready provisions and took worn out sacks from their donkeys and wineskins, worn out and torn and mended with worn out patched sandals on their feet and worn out clothes. And all their provisions were dry and crumbly. And they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, we have come from a distant country. So now make a covenant with us. But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, perhaps you live among us. Then how can we make a covenant with you? You see, God had told them, don't make any covenant with the people in the land. And so some of the Israelites, they're a little suspicious. They said to Joshua, we are your servants. And Joshua said to them, who are you and where do you come from? They said to him, from a very distant country, your servants have come because of the name of the Lord your God, for we have heard a report of him and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who are beyond the Jordan, to Sihon, the king of Hezbon, and to Og, king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, take provisions in your hand for the journey and go to meet them and say to them, we are your servants, come now, make a covenant with us. <coughs> And so Joshua and Israelites, they make a covenant, not knowing that these men were from the land of Canaan. And it's not long before their deception is revealed. Obviously, Joshua and the Israelites were not lear uh, pleased to learn that the people they just made a covenant with had lied to them. But Israel, Joshua knows he must honor the covenant with Gibeon, for they swore their oath on the name of the Lord. And Joshua makes them their servants just as they agreed upon. The Canaanite king who ruled over Jerusalem heard what Joshua had done to both Jericho and Ai. He heard of how the city of Gibeon had made peace with Israel, and he was afraid. Ai was weak, but Jericho and Gibeon also were strong cities, and they had strong, fierce warriors. 
He says to his allies, again, these five kings, these kingdoms that have banded together, he says to them, let's go destroy Gibeon because they have made a covenant with Joshua. It's a preemptive strike as the king doesn't want the mighty men of Gibeon to fight for the Israelites. Everybody get the setup now? This is what's going on. So these five kings, they're going to go destroy the people of Gibeon. Joshua 10, verse 4. He says, come up to me and help me and let us strike Gibeon. For it has made peace with Joshua Joshua, with the people of Israel. Then the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Leshesh, and the king of Eglon gathered their forces and went up with all their armies and encamped against Gibeon and made war against it. And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp in Gilgal saying, do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us for all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. And so the people from Gibeon, they say, please, remember, we just made this covenant. We're being attacked. Come quickly. And so Joshua honors his covenant with, the, with Gibeon and marches out to war. And so the first lesson we see here is how God uses events and circumstances for good, which we might see as bad. Gibeon lied to Israel. Israel made a foolish covenant with Gibeon. Gibeon was supposed to be wiped out by Israel, but Israel was now, they had now become literally their protectors. Instead of being able to take on one king and kingdom, one city at a time, one army at a time, now Joshua has to fight five kings and five armies at once. Have you ever had everything in life go wrong all at once? The car, the stove, both break at the same time. You look at your checkbook and you go, there ain't no money there. You look up to the heavens and you go, seriously? It's the point where you must have faith that God knows what he is doing and that everything is going according to his plan, even when we don't understand it. Romans 8, 28 says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. It's a great example of this verse. Joshua was not supposed to be in a covenant with the Gibeonites. Joshua was not supposed to have to rush to their defense. Joshua and his army were not supposed to have to march all night to arrive at the break of dawn so that they could fight all day long. Joshua was not supposed to fight five armies all at once. It would have been easy for Joshua to think that everything was going wrong. Everything was spinning out of control. You know, we had a good start. We had a little hiccup at AI, but man, things have taken a left turn here. But God had everything right where he wanted it. Joshua might have been worried. I know I would have been, but the Lord wasn't worried. It just meant that Israel only had to fight one battle instead of five. He's speeding things up. He's making it easier in the long run for Israel. Why take months to defeat these kings and armies when we can just do it in one day? Joshua 10, verse 7. 
So Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said to Joshua, do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal. And the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon and chased them. Verse 11. And as they fled before Israel, now listen to this. It says, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them, and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. The battle is going marvelously. The Lord's hand is upon Joshua and his men. And, and again, God's wiping out these kings. God's wiping out these armies. But time is running short. And the battle is not over. You see, they've marched all night. They fought all day. And now the sun is beginning to go down. And Joshua knows that they will lose them. They will, people will get away. These enemy combatants will get away. These kings, these men that wanted to destroy Israel will get away if darkness falls. Now, I think most of us would have been, con been content at that point. I think most of us would have called it a win. Imagine fighting five armies at once and you rout them. Five massive armies all in retreat, all taking massive losses. God's got your back because hailstones are flying out of heaven, killing the enemy. Basically, you have next to no casualties. Most of us would have patted ourselves on the back and said, good job, good enough. Let's head home. Let's not push our luck. But Joshua is not content. He wants to wipe out this threat. He wants to take out these kings and these armies today. So there's no chance he would ever have to fight them in the future. So he does what anyone would do who needed more daylight. He commands the sun to stand still. What? Huh? What do you mean? He spoke to the sun and said, stand still. Listen to Joshua 10, verse 12. At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, sun, stand still at Gibeon and moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is it not written in the book of Jasher? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. Joshua spoke to the sun and told it not to move, and it listened. Whoa. When we read things like this, it produces a lot of questions, doesn't it? 
How could the sun stand still? How could the moon stop its orbit around the earth? I mean, we, we know that the sun doesn't orbit around the earth. The earth orbits and spins, and that's what causes the sun to go through the sky. And like, you know, like if the earth just stopped spinning, like wouldn't we all fly off into space or something? I mean, we know that effects that the moon has in gravity uh, it causes the tides it exerts pressure on the crust of the earth and and all this stuff and if everything all of a sudden just came to a screeching halt uh, it, it wouldn't it have just incredible cataclysmic effects i mean maybe God caused the sun to move in a manner that it, it made, you know, match the earth's rotation or something. But then you go, what kind of effects would that have had on the other planets and, and stuff in outer space? I mean, any, any way we imagine this, it just creates incredible chaos, doesn't it? Maybe he altered the tilt of the earth and just kind of caused it to rotate some other way, but... Again, we can't imagine how this happened without drastic consequences. The question isn't how could the sun stand still. It's not how could the earth suddenly cease to rotate. The question at hand is how big is your God? How big is your God? See, the God that spoke the universe into existence. You see, the God that makes the blind to see and the lame to walk, the deaf to hear. Is he the God that sent all the plagues on the Egyptians? Is he the God that held back the waters of the Red Sea and the Jordan River? Is he the God that descended on Mount Sinai in fire? Is he the God that sent manna from heaven to feed his people who kept their shoes and clothes from wearing out for 40 years? Is he the God that rained down uh, fire and brimstone on Sodom and Gomorrah, on, on these five kings as we read about? Is he the God that stood with three men in the fire and kept them from even smelling like smoke? Is he the God that shut the mouths of hungry lions? Is he the God that can feed 5,000 with a few loaves of bread and a couple of fish? Is he the God of miracles and mighty deeds? Is he really the deliverer, the redeemer, the savior? Is he not the God who raises the dead? Is he not the God who, when he died, raised himself from the dead? How big is your God? My God is able to create the universe with just a word. My God is able to breathe life into a pile of dust and turn it into a living soul, Adam. My God is able to command the stars to ignite and set them in motion and command them to follow the course that he sets for them. If he can do all that, surely he is able to speak to those same stars and say, pause. My kids are always trying to get me to play that game. Pause, Dad. You, you can't move now. I'm like, I don't play that game. But guess what? If God says, hey, earth, moon, sun, pause, guess what happens? 
they obey his command. If he can write the laws of physics and by his will create a working and ordered universe, then he can also suspend those same laws but a word from the lawgiver. He is the omnipotent, almighty God of the universe. It's a moment in our Bibles where we are confronted with a God that can do absolutely anything he wants at any time he chooses. Now, it's an affront to the modern mind, and we must choose what we will believe. How many of you can even imagine what this day was like when Joshua said to the son, don't you move? And it listened. Will we believe what we have been conditioned to believe? What our eyes tell us is possible. Or will we believe what God says about himself? You see, we live in a world that says everything has to be explained by science, by rational thought, and everything must have a natural explanation. Everything must fit nicely into our view and understanding of existence. I've never seen the sun stand still, the earth cease to rotate, and the moon to pause its orbit, so it must not be possible. All the laws of science that I know and I learned in school says that is not possible, so it can't possibly be possible. I understand the consequences that it would bring in the natural world, and so it can't possibly happen. <coughs> but just because something has never happened in our experience doesn't mean it can't happen. Just because something the laws of normal science says can't happen because it would destroy everything doesn't mean that it can't happen with God. You see, because we have a God who makes everything possible. Matthew nineteen twenty six, But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God, how many? How many? How many? All things are possible. And every time we encounter a miracle in the Bible, it brings up a question of faith. What God do you believe in? Do you believe in the God of miracles? Do you believe in the God of the all possible? Is his word true? Is God able to say the things he says? Uh, is he able to do the things he says he can you know, people, even Christians, balk at the thought of the sun standing still and the earth ceasing its rotation for a time because we know, of, again, of the ramifications of what that means. They say, surely this was some kind of allegory. The parting of the Red Sea is one thing, but the sun standing still, it didn't really happen, did it? You don't believe that, do you? That's obviously not true history. Do you know what my reply to that is? It's why it's called a miracle, dummy. It can't happen by natural means. It's called a miracle because it's the suspension of all the natural laws of physics and science and of the universe. It's not natural. It's supernatural. Supernatural. 
it breaks the natural order of how things work. How many of us understand when something dies, it doesn't come back to life? But it does with God. Our Lord is the God of the all possible. And boy, that's a term that we really need to desperately learn and get into our vocabulary and our hearts. God is the all possible God. There's no mountain too big that he cannot move. There's no situation too dire that he cannot overcome and work a miracle in. You think you're too far gone for God to redeem you? Think again. He is the God of the all possible. Too sick to be healed. Change your thinking. God is the all possible God. You know, when Lazarus died, his sisters thought there was no hope except for far in the future when everyone would enter into eternity. Martha said, Lord, if you'd only been here a few days ago, if you'd have just been here a few days ago before he died, then you could have done something. And Jesus said, it's not too late. It's not too late. I'm the God of the all possible. Let me show you. And then he raised Lazarus from the dead. When Jesus was dead in the grave, the disciples thought it was all over. And then boom, on the third day, Jesus rose from the dead. So the question that we need to answer is not how big our God is, how big do you believe he is? I wonder how many of us would have spoken to the sun and demanded that it stand still. I wonder how many of us, when we need a miracle, have faith to speak to move the mountain and actually believe that it will move. Joshua had a faith that was bold and audacious. He had no problem speaking out in faith to command the sun to stand still and give him the time he needed to see the victory. And so if these things are small things with God, why don't we see more miracles? So we've talked about in the past... There isn't much that limits God's power, amen? One is his will. Sometimes God says, no, it's not in my will for that to happen. But I think the people of God in so many places today, we have a real lack of faith. And a lack of faith is a reason why we don't see miracles. Again, the question is not how big is God. God is big enough. And we should see that immediately. If he can speak the universe into existence, and we're still even just now beginning to understand how big the universe really is. If he can just speak all that into existence, if he can raise the dead, if he can heal the sick, if he can hold back uh, mountains of water, I mean, the things that he's done, it's not a question of how big he is. It's how big do we believe he is how big is he to us you see faith is a big component of seeing miracles joshua was a man of faith he had seen the parting of the red sea he had walked on the mountain in the midst of the fire of the holy one of israel he had eaten of the manna and drank from the water from the rock 
He had sat under the cloud by day, and he was warmed by the pillar of fire by night. When everyone else but Caleb wanted to flee back into the wilderness, Joshua was ready to go to war with giants. Joshua was a man of faith. And you might say, well, of course he was a man of faith. Look at all he saw that you just talked about. I would say there are about two other million Israelites that saw a lot of the same stuff, if not all the same stuff, and they didn't have the faith of Joshua or Caleb. How many miracles does it take to have faith in God's ability to do the impossible? I hope you believe that Jesus rose from the dead. How many of you believe that Jesus rose from the dead? How many of you understand that's a miracle? Our entire salvation... Our religion is based upon that one fact. 1 Corinthians 15 says, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of of all people most to be pitied. I would assume if you say you're saved, then surely you believe in this, that the Messiah was raised from the dead on the third day. That's a miracle. And if God can defeat death, then whatever you're facing is a small thing for him to accomplish. Matthew 13. The role of faith in miracles. Verse 53, and when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do mighty works there because of their unbelief. They did not believe in him. They did not believe in the things he could do. They had a small view of who God was. Luke 4, which is another accounting of this event, it records more of what Jesus said. He said, there were many widows in Israel during the famine of Elijah's day. He said that while there were many widows, Elijah was sent to only one, the one who had faith. He said there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, but only Naaman was healed. Few have the faith that brings about miracles in our day and age. Few see God for how big he truly is. Again, sometimes when we ask for a miracle, the answer is no or not right now. Things are done according to the will of God and in his timing, not ours. But we should never let it be a lack of faith on our part as to why we don't see the miracle take place. So let us not be like the people of Nazareth where the Lord refuses to do mighty works because they had no faith. They saw him as being little. 
Let faith arise in our hearts and put our belief in the all-possible God of Israel. And let us speak with a bold confidence in our heart when the need arises, believing that God will not only answer, but will meet our needs. And so this morning, how big is your God? How big is your God? How big is your faith in this big God? How big is your faith in the God of the all-possible? So worship team comes back. I'm just going to ask if everybody would stand for a moment. It's a simple message today, just carrying on the thoughts of last week. How big is your God? How big is your faith? How many of you would say, I need a bigger view of God? I need more faith. Then let's pray, hearing of the mighty works of God, the God of the all possible. Let's, let's pray and say, God, would you give me a faith that allows me to see how big you truly are? How mighty and wondrous are your works? How all things are possible with you? That we would know these things in our lives. Amen. Pray with me now. Heavenly Father, I pray, O oh God, Lord, that you would give us a faith, Lord, a faith that would just uh, be incredible, Lord. Lord, that you would work in our hearts, Lord. That we would understand how big you are. Lord, that you want to move in our lives in incredible ways, Lord. To empower us to preach your gospel to a lost and dying world. Lord, that we would see the sick healed. Lord, that we would experience manna from heaven in your provision, Lord. Lord, that we would see broken lives and hearts changed by your hand. Lord, that we ourselves would experience your healing power, Lord. Lord, in our hearts, but in our bodies as well, Lord. Lord, we confess, we proclaim that you're the God of the all possible. There is nothing too big for you, Lord. Lord, and not only is nothing too big, but you're right here in our midst right now, God moving in this place Lord working in the hearts of everyone Lord who will accept you and your power God Lord we pray come now come now Lord and minister to us Lord as you cause our faith to grow Lord Lord cause our expectations in you to grow God that we would see the manifestation of your Holy Spirit and your miracle-working power here in our midst, Lord.
Lift your hands to the Lord. Sing. 